Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today, Senior Features Editor Danielle Terciano talks with Craig Mazin, executive producer of HBO's Chernobyl, which premieres May 6th. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke will discuss Netflix's Dead to Me and Stars' The Spanish Princess. Then we'll talk with reporter Joe Otterson about the latest pilot season buzz. Stay tuned. Hey, well, welcome, Craig, to TV Take. Thank you. Great to be here. So... I want to talk a little bit about the structure of Chernobyl because, you know, it is a true story. So a lot of the audience, hopefully most of the audience, knows the history, has learned the history. Right. So did you feel it would have done a disservice to the story had you not had you started with what leads up to it and kind of held back the the main event, let's so to say? Sure. Yeah, I did. Uh, I thought... It's funny, you know, coming out of comedy, you have this pressure to be responsible to the audience. You're accountable to the audience. And it seemed to me that if I'm going to make a show about Chernobyl to make people wait for the the event, the explosion of the nuclear reactor would be uh, frustrating for everybody and diminishing when it finally happened as if to say, drum roll, please, explosion. For me, actually, the explosion is the least interesting thing that happens. I wanted it to occur right away, and I wanted it to occur in a very odd way, sort of quasi-silently, because everything about the show is about the perspective of human beings. And we will eventually get to the place at the very end mm-hmm. of the series where we show the day of and the leading up to, which is very traditional. But because I was so committed to not making a conventional, quote-unquote, disaster show, I didn't want to do anything structurally the way disaster shows do them. Mm-hmm. When you looked at um, – you said you, you called it kind of silently. But yeah. when you looked at, like, the actual events and, and knowing, you know, there is archival footage, there are photos, there are, you know, some testimony from individuals on different sides of it – um, what did you feel the most responsibility to do 100% or 99% accurately versus, well, you know what, this is still a dramatization and I want right. to put a spin on it? My basic instinct was to do everything as true as I could. So if I had a choice to do it correctly and accurate to truth, I would do that as long as it didn't uh, foreclose the opportunity to actually tell the story. Um, when you are taking an event that is sort of unfolded over two years and compressing it into five hours, you are going to make some changes. But our rule was always this. If we're going to make a change, it has to be for that reason, to be able to narratively convey this at all, but never to enhance drama. Mm -hmm. So even, and look, there are a lot of conflicting accounts, uh, no surprise, when we're talking about an event, even like this one that has been so well studied there we're still relying on a certain amount of information that comes from behind a closed society at the Soviet Union. And so 
there were times where I had a choice. I could use this version or this version. And this version was way crazier. And in those instances, I always went for the less crazy. I always, always just defaulted to less dramatic mm-hmm. because the things that we know for sure happened are so inherently dramatic. I never wanted to undercut that in any way. And it's another reason why uh, at the end of each episode, we have a podcast that we do that is basically this. It's an accounting. Mm-hmm. What did we change and mm-hmm. why? Because the show kind of is about truth mm-hmm. and the danger of narrative. And I didn't want to perpetuate that danger while I was telling a story about the danger of narrative. I actually wanted to talk about one of the things that it seems you changed the most, which is Emily Watson's character just being there. Right. Because it feels like maybe I don't have the full history, but it feels like there really were no women, powerful women in those positions at that time period. And yet it feels like you couldn't do a show maybe with all male scientists today. Well, uh, I will tell you that we were accurate to how dude heavy Chernobyl was. Okay. I mean, it is, and it is relentless. I mean, it's so interesting because we live in a time now where, where rightfully so and happily we are concentrating on representation and representation takes the form of including women where maybe they would have been excluded and also including people of color where they would have been excluded. And here's Chernobyl, which is the whitest, <laughs> malest event in history. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's astonishing. I literally went, by the way, I did research because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just assuming things. Right. When you do research on the racial makeup of the Soviet Union and you try and ask how many people of African descent mm-hmm. were living in the Soviet Union, they, they just don't bother to do it. Wow. They just didn't bother because the answer was really 12, 13, yeah. 15. Now, when it came to women, here's an interesting fact. You're right to say the Soviet Union was a patriarchal society um, and it was male dominated in the Carters of power. No question. Very few women were ever in the uh, the kind of overall ruling pol- political body of the Soviet Union. But one area where the Soviets were actually more progressive than we were was in the area of science and medicine, mm-hmm. particularly medicine. The Soviet Union had quite a large percentage of female doctors. There is... We could say it's because they were perhaps progressive in this area. But let's also remember that the Soviet Union was shaped by World War II in a way that we weren't. The Soviet Union lost tens of millions of people, majority Mm -hmm. men. There was a generation of men that just were gone. So women stepped up into these positions. And yes, they were absolutely included in positions of science. Um, And so I wanted to be able to show that. And this was one area where I could do it authentically and historically. Emily's character, Ulana Homyuk, is a essentially a compendium of, mm. she represents all of these other scientists that came in and risked quite a bit to fight a system, not just the system of government, but also the system of science, mm-hmm. which in and of itself had a certain patriarchy to it and was very interested in protecting itself from its own mistakes. So, I mean, because she is is not based on one specific person, tell me a little bit about the casting process for someone like that versus char- uh, actors who are playing actual human mm. beings that we have testimony from. Sure. Well, the casting process for that character was that I wrote it for Emily Watson. Okay. <laughs> and then she said yes. The same casting process for Valeria Legasov. I wrote it for Jared Harris and he said okay. yes. And then I wrote Boris Shervina for Stellan Skarsgård and he said yes. This will never happen again <laughs> to me in my life. But were you looking for different things from actors who had to portray somebody who we have historic record of? Yes. 
there were um, when you look at the historical record and you're you're seeing you're basically operating by either an account of actions and then as as somebody who's dramatizing things looking for a sense of character behind those actions or in some cases you have accounts first person accounts in the case of for instance like Anatoly Dyatlov who's played by Paul Ritter there were his actions which spoke to me of a certain kind of brutal stubborn and arrogance but not an evil mm-hmm. uh I don't think he was an evil man at all I think he was uh, he was arrogant. I think he defines arrogant. And I also think that he was, again, somebody stuck in a system where if he couldn't do what his bosses demanded of him, he would never get out of this control room mm-hmm. environment. He wanted to be behind a desk. He wanted a better life. Mm-hmm. He was also somebody that had suffered himself. He had been a nuclear engineer for the for the Russian Navy working on submarines. There was an accident there in which he got nearly a lifetime dose of radiation. His son died of leukemia. There is some suggestion that it may have been related mm. to. So this was in his own way, a tragic man. So we also have first person accounts from him, which are remarkably defiant, even after Chernobyl, mm. defiant in a way that frustrated me. When I read it, I just thought, okay, you're the guy who goes down with your own ship. You will, you're not doubling down. You're quadrupling down. You're, he, and look, on, on one, the one hand, he was right. His criticism that Chernobyl couldn't have happened if the Soviet system hadn't built a bad reactor and hadn't lied to everybody running the right. reactor. But on the other hand, he left out all the stuff that he did, which was insane. So that's an interesting character mm-hmm. to think about. And that's how I kind, I kind of reverse engineered everybody from their actions. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, in speaking specifically to that, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is – how frustrating it can be for the viewer when we know that characters are making all the wrong decisions. Yeah. So what did you have to do, if anything, in your own writing process to work through that to make sure that, you know, not that you're justifying their actions because these were real things that happened, but um, that there's maybe a balance of how frustrated a viewer may get with these characters. And does it matter if these characters are likable or not? Well, likable, no. Right. Um, because we're telling a true story. I, I, I hope that by the end of it, people see the humanity in mm-hmm. everybody involved, including somebody like Diallo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody working in the nuclear power industry in the Soviet Union was in one way or another put in a position where it was impossible to be likable. They were all working in a system that was difficult. Uh, and of course the, the costs for failure were, were significant. Um, so I was never concerned about likable. Uh, and in fact, I think likable is boring. Um, disagreeable is the term I prefer. I think they're all to some extent were disagreeable people. And I like that. What I did struggle with at times was the level of denial Mm. at times the facts, the factual record shows people behaving in a way that is so wildly deep in denial that I struggled with how to present it. It it started, likability wasn't the problem. Believability was the problem. Mm. And so I actually pulled back here and there on some of the, the kind of really deep levels and behaviors of denial that were just so bizarre to me that I couldn't even explain them 
from a writing point of view of like some sort of twisted motivation. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find it. So I just sort of backed off a little bit on that stuff. Okay. When we when you looked at how unflinching some of it had to be just because of the trauma that basically the event, and I don't mean just the physical, you know, but the trauma that it inflicted on these people that are living in this area and, you know, yeah. some people who, the denial, some people who didn't want to leave because it was their home, like all of these things come into play in different ways. What was the line you wanted to walk with just how, I don't know if graphic's the right mm-hmm. word, but how deep to go in those places? This is ultimately comes down to a question of creative judgment, because on the one side, and flinching is a great word I think you used, and we want to be brave and show people because people deserve to know. Mm-hmm. When we see, you know, we're somewhat used to movies that account the Holocaust, for instance. There's been quite a few of them, and some of them are more unflinching than others. But I remember seeing Schindler's List and watching Ray Fine's character just shooting people from his balcony and it was horrifying and unflinching and I felt it was important. I saw it. So that's one side. And on the other side is exploitation, mm-hmm. essentially sensationalism to freak you out. And my job and the job of Johan Renk, our director, and the job of Carolyn Strauss and Jane Featherstone, our other executive producers, was to police each other on that line. Um, and I think we did a really good job. There was one... There's one scene um, where Jesse Buckley's character plays Ludmilla Ignatenko. She's with her dying husband, played by Adam Negatis. And we see this is the final stage of radiation sickness. And it is gruesome. It is, it is hard to look at. And we approach that scene very much like, I think, the way sometimes filmmakers have to approach sex scenes with mm-hmm. the MPAA. How many frames? How long do we linger? What do we show? What do we not show? Um and we tried to make that scene, even though it is impossible to escape the brutality of what radiation has done to him, the moment is about something she's telling him that's kind of beautiful and hopeful, and he smiles. And so it became about a relationship and not about, oh, my God, mm. look what happened to him. Mm-hmm. So this is the line we walked, and it was difficult. Um, and I hope that when people see it, they feel that we've – we haven't done anything disrespectful because that was certainly not our intent. Yeah. I mean, that is a very personal, intimate moment between characters. And then obviously there are bigger scenes, you know, actual testimony scenes where it is a little bit more about the historical. Right. So what do you hope ultimately the audience walks away with from the show? I mean, is it is it more educational or is it, as you mentioned earlier, more about exploring humanity, maybe even taking these lessons for today? Well, the drama is an amazing delivery system for a lesson because I don't think we are able to ever really wrap our minds around something terrible unless it's through the eyes of people. You know, I remember reading All Quiet on the Western Front as a kid and thinking, okay, I have not been in World War One, but I think I kind of understand it because mm-hmm. of this individual account. So the drama I hope will bring them close to the story and what they will find at the heart of it is that there is a dreadful cost to lying and a dreadful cost to self-deceit and a dreadful cost to the demeaning and cheapening of people whose expertise is in, in understanding the world. There is a, a, an overt global war on the truth right now. 
And it is impossible to not see these parallels to where mm -hmm. we are now. When, when I was a kid, the Soviet Union was deservedly worthy of mockery for having a newspaper called Truth that had nothing, <laughs> nothing true in it. Right. And we thought that was them. Mm -hmm. And we're special and different. We're not. We're not. It's happening now. Mm -hmm. It's happening in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I want people to look at this and understand uh, that Chernobyl is about what happens when we decide we're bigger and better than the truth. And we can do whatever we want with it because it's a toy. Mm -hmm. The truth doesn't care. The ice caps don't care. The wind doesn't care. The water doesn't care. The temperature doesn't care. It will do whatever it wants to do. And we can tell each other stories until it's too late. Or we can open our eyes and confront things before things explode. Mm -hmm. So this is a warning. I look at the show very much as a warning. Um, but also in inside of that warning, there is a memorial and a celebration of the lives of these amazing people who behaved in the most noble and beautiful ways, even while they were citizens of a repressive government. And I don't think that we have ever in the West really told a story of Soviet people's culture in the way that we have here, mm. which is out of total respect and authenticity uh, because these are the people who suffered on the front lines of this terrible war. I mean, all of these things that, that we're talking about are very big and, and lofty in a lot of ways. Is that why you felt like five episodes over a limited series is the right way as opposed to, I mean, you've had such a stellar film career, this easily could have been a you know, a big screen feature. Well, I now think every story should be five episodes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's just so much easier to tell. I mean, look, the thing about writing a movie is you you start on page one and you're already sweating because <laughs> you you there's a clock running on your right. page count, uh, and it's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And you're you're compromising from the beginning. Mm. Now that said, there are some amazing movies, and I've I've loved working in movies, but there is um, when you're dealing with something like this. And you want to show the totality of something like Chernobyl. You can't do it as a movie. If you do it as a movie, it becomes a disaster movie. There's no way around okay. it. And to me, that would just ignore the purpose of it all. Um, so I was lucky around when I first started researching this around 2014 uh, was just when these things were starting to emerge again, when the U.S. was looking at the U.K. format of six episode seasons and things and starting to adapt it. So I just thought, okay, the time is right where I can mm. actually do this in, in, a, in a reasonable way. Uh, and no, I couldn't have told this any other way. Okay. And let me ask you this because, I mean, a lot of your films are highly comedic and this is the complete opposite of that. So it is, is this the thing that's been inside you the whole time and you just fell into comedy? Or was this a true departure and maybe you changed some of the way you worked because the, because the tone is so different? Well, no question there. They couldn't be more different. I, mean, I don't think there's anything less funny than Chernobyl. Um, you know, we're all different people inside of ourselves. You know, um, it's we all kind of assume this in our daily lives. But when people create movies or television or any kind of art, we start to think of them as somewhat one track. Mm. Um, I love comedy and I love working in comedy. The thing about comedy in Hollywood is because there aren't a lot of people that write comedy movies in a way that is somewhat reliable for the people paying for them. They, they I always say it's like being a left-handed specialist out of the bullpen. You know, your job is to come in and get a lefty out. That's mm -hmm. your job. And and you're like, but look, I also 
you know, I also play a great third base. And they're like, oh, we got third baseman. We need you <laughs> to come in and get the lefties out. So you that's where the opportunities mm. are. And they keep coming and they don't stop. And that in and of itself, though, wasn't a bad thing. I mean, because, again, I love comedy. But also it there's a training to writing comedy that is so rigorous. Mm. I'll go back again to the accountability to the audience. And of course, comedy, I say, of course, a lot of people still don't get it, is so much harder than drama. <laughs> it's so much harder. I mean, all awards should go to comedies. Um, so everything was really a preparation to then a moment where I could say, look, here's this other part of me that's always been there. I've always been fascinated by science. I've always been fascinated by history. And I feel this need to tell this story. And I was... Very grateful for HBO taking a chance on, you know, the funny guy. Uh, now that I've done this, it's and again, so much easier than comedy. <laughs> I think. A lot of people are like, it's maybe it's easier for you. Well, that, yeah. well, I mean, and do you feel like maybe it's easier because you do have all of this research to help you? It's not 100% out of nowhere. Well, the research will help you or it will drown you. Okay. The research is an interesting, it's a fascinating thing. You... Well, first of all, research is an amazing procrastination tool. Uh, anybody could say, oh, yeah, I'm researching for years. Um, but the more you research, the more you realize you have to organize and craft and represent. Everything is about absorbing this pool of information mm -hmm. and then structuring it so that people can receive it in a, in a clear and connected way. So the more you know, the bigger and harder it gets. Uh, but that part was also a joy and, you know, uh, I, I think I'm going to live in this space for a while because it, well, first of all, again, the miniseries thing is amazing. Uh, <laughs> and also look, just being totally honest with you in television, I think writers are treated the way they should be treated. Mm. It's not that, oh, well, in television writers are the boss and in movies directors, but I think it's, it's not about being the boss. I mean, Johan and I got along beautifully. There was never a moment where I said, no, you're doing it my – we right. just worked beautifully together. But I was treated the way I should always be treated. And and I'm so puzzled now that I've mm. gone through this. Like, why did I – why do they not do this in movies? It makes no sense to me. But alas, I think I'm going to stay in television for a while. I think yes. I'm going to stay in miniseries. And I think I'm going to stick with drama for a while because it's exercising this muscle that, you know – heretofore had not uh, been allowed to me. Do you already have a next one kind of on your mind lined up? I do. It's it's more than on my mind. It's it's in place. I mean, I'm going to continue making shows for HBO. Mm -hmm. They've been an incredible, incredible home for me. And I'm always, you know, I always point out HBO and also Sky, which yeah. co-produces that we knew, like we're saying, you're getting five episodes of a show and then it's over. There's no season two. We don't have dragons. We, this is <laughs> this is very expensive. Are you sure you want to do this? And they said, "Oh yes," and and I am deeply grateful mm. for that. Um, so I do know what the next thing is. I'm not. I can't say what it is out loud. I can, I'm saying it in my mind right now. Mm -hmm. But you're working on it. But it's going to be, and it, it is. It's a similar in the sense it's a miniseries and it's dramatic, but it is also wildly different from Chernobyl, uh, a story that hits much closer to home. I'll say that much. Thank you so much for being here. This sounds great. Thank you for having me. Dead to Me, a new dark comedy from Netflix, premieres May 3rd on the streaming service. Period drama The Spanish Princess debuts May 5th on Stars. 
Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario discussed both shows. The Emmy deadline is nearing at the end of May. Uh, all shows being considered for the awards need to have uh, come out. And two shows that I think are hope, hoping to be in the hunt are coming out this week. The first of them is Dead to Me, a Netflix serial comedy, dramedy. Uh, All of the above. Yeah, so, starring uh, Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. I'm told that it is a show about which little can be revealed without spoiling it and even less uh, without incurring the wrath of Netflix, but we will try to talk around it. Caroline, you are reviewing Dead to Me. Um, what is it? <laughs> I've, I've, I've only seen the marketing materials. They reveal next to nothing by design. All right. Here's what I can tell you. Christina Applegate is grieving the death of her husband. She meets Linda Cardellini. And they become friends. And antics ensue. That's kind of all I can say, I guess. Uh, but I think that, you know, the larger story, as you said, is that this is the... This is, the com- this combination of Cardellini and Applegate is obviously something that Netflix is excited about. I was excited to see it. Um, both are TV veterans in from very different corners of TV. Cardellini from Freaks and Geeks, Applegate from Married with Children. So it's really fun to see them in a project together where they do get to kind of run the gamut of emotions, as you indicated, with the sort of cross-genre um, appeal of the show. I will say that the sort of that tone does get a little muddled sometimes because sometimes it's just straight up drama and sometimes it's like wacky misadventures in Laguna Beach Um, some of that works better than other times but I feel like I'm just going to keep coming back to being like Cardellini and Applegate are really good because they are right Um, and they get so much room here the show is created by uh, oh had her name right here the she worked on two broke girls her name is on the tip of my tongue and it is liz feld liz feldman liz feldman created this yes. show. <laughs> we got there um it's also got a pretty fun supporting cast including james marston in a role that i also cannot tell you about <laughs> which is frustrating because he's really good in it um I, I guess without spoiling much, I feel like James Marsden is really good at sort of straddling the line between being sort of like the pretty jerk and the nice guy. And this role is no exception in that case. Sounds just like what he did on one of my favorite shows, Westworld. <laughs> yes, one of your favorite shows, Westworld. I'm sure we'll talk about it again soon. We definitely will. <laughs> we will treat you to Dan versus Caroline on Westworld sometime. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, he's very good on that. He is a little bit more aggressive in this one, but in a way that I really I, I really enjoy watching him do. So uh, it's 10 episodes. They went by really fast. I watched them pretty much in like two days, which I'm sure is Netflix's plan. I think it's a little bit more scattered than it should be. Uh, It kind of hits the same story beats over and over again in a way that maybe won't register as much if you watch it all at once. But if you're picking it apart like I had to, (laughs) it becomes a little bit more obvious. But uh, yeah, I think this is a good example of a Netflix marathon that will be easy to tune into and let autoplay and you'll spend a few decently fun hours watching these two actresses really get to flex their muscles in a way that I don't think either of them have really gotten a chance to do on TV in some time, which is a shame. And I hope we get to see more of them. The season certainly ends on another cliffhanger. Every episode ends with a cliffhanger. 
uh, which is what keeps it going. So it seems like they're counting on a second season, and I hope they get one to tell the story that they want to tell. Um, on the other side of things, you reviewed Spanish Princess for us. This is a star's historical drama about one of my favorite periods of history. Yes. I'm a big Tudor history nerd, and I feel like Catherine of Aragon does not actually get that much consideration when you have Anne Boleyn right there, which, you know, to be fair, Anne Boleyn is great. But uh, I would love to hear more about how this series approaches the, per- the period in history that, you know, again, I love, but has been talked about a lot on TV, especially. So yes. what, if anything, does this bring to the story that is new Etc. and so on. So this is one in Stars, the Stars Network's uh, series of limited series uh, based on the historical novels of Philippa Gregory, who, uh, if you look into Philippa Gregory, uh, some believe that she is a stickler for rigorous historical accuracy. Some believe uh, she writes bodice rippers. I have no position on her work. I haven't read it. I will say that. This seems like it should be a reclamation project for Catherine of Aragon, who is the central figure. Catherine of Aragon was the first wife of Henry VIII. She was a Spanish princess who was brought to England in order to cement an alliance between Catholic Spain and Protestant England. Uh, And things went awry. Um, The problem of the Spanish princess... For all in it that works, including uh, costuming and visuals that I think will make it an Emmy contender in craft categories, is that Catherine is a fairly remote figure who is motivated not quite single-mindedly, but at the exclusion of much else by the desire to claim the throne. And there's not a lot else going on with her. I think that Charlotte Hope, who is a British actress does her best. She is saddled with a Spanish accent that I think can get the better of her and uh, kind of slack set of motivations. There are a couple um, you know, period drama standbys in the cast. There's Harriet Walter, who's been in a bunch of things, who is a dame. Dame Harriet Walter is absolutely delicious as Margaret Beaufort, who is the grandmother of Henry VIII. Laura Carmichael, uh, who uh, was kind of the stick in the mud of Downton Abbey uh, shows up, and it's a it's a welcome sight to see her. Overall, though, I was left feeling as though, as you say, a period of, of history in which there's so much inherent interest kind of felt unmotivated and slack. Even Henry VIII, who is a young man in this and not the uh, corpulent beast he becomes, <laughs> uh, he's one of kind of Brit history's, you know, great monsters, and he's played as just kind of a sexy brat. Like, there's no kind of glimmer of the person he's going to become, to my eye. And I found it just kind of a bit of a missed opportunity. With that said, it seemed like pretty squarely pitched over the plate at fans of this kind. If this kind of thing appeals to you, you will like this. As a more casual fan who just kind of likes the history but doesn't live and die for this genre of fiction, I was left a little cold. Oh, well, that's a shame, but you know what we always say? There's always more TV where that came from. 
U.S. broadcast networks are entering the home stretch of their development processes for the 2019-2020 season. Reporter Joe Otterson checked in to talk about which pilots have the most buzz ahead of upfronts. So, Joe, what's the latest buzz on pilots for the 2019-2020 broadcast television season? Funny you should ask, Dan. Uh, there are several projects. <laughs> there are several projects that are getting a lot of attention right now. So let's just go uh, network by network, if we may. Start at the top. ABC. ABC um, on the comedy side, both the Untitled Hannah Simone project and the and Woman Up from Zoe Lister Jones are both getting a lot of attention. As is the uh, Untitled project from Jessica Gao of Rick and Morty fame. On the drama side, um, both New York Undercover and NYPD Blue have been very high on ABC's list from the very beginning, and word is those are both pretty much guaranteed to pick up at this point. As it, and uh, but also the um, Heather Graham project, the Hypnotist Love Story, based on the book of the same name by from Big Little Lies author Leanne Moriarty, also supposedly came in very well for them. I just want to point out that in a previous take, you called Heather Graham what's her name. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up again, and I really Just appreciate it. Remind you. With, with all due respect to Heather Graham, I love Heather Graham's work, especially Boogie Nights and Austin Powers and The Spy Who Shagged Me. Moving on, <laughs> CBS. Um, on the drama side for CBS, I'm told that uh, Evil from Robert and Michelle King is looking good for a pickup. The Kings have a very long-standing relationship with CBS. Uh, but one Did inter- you say the Kings have a long-standing relationship with CVS? CBS. Like the drugstore, Joe? Yes, Dan. The <laughs> chain of drugstores? Maybe they do. I don't know if the Kings Could are be CBS their pharmacy. fans. Maybe they're Walgreens people. I don't know. We can ask them on the next episode of the podcast. I'll take a break from politely interrupting you to ask you then about, <laughs> about the Kings project, because there is an interesting set of circumstances around it, correct? Yes. So uh, sources say that one thing that helped the Kings uh, get this project to CBS, they were told by CBS that they would not necessarily have to do a full 22-episode season uh, because of their current workload, which makes a lot of sense. The Kings have the good fight at CBS All Access, and they're also currently prepping the drama Your Honor with Brian Cranston at Showtime. Um, also at CBS, uh, the comedy side, uh, Carol's Second Act with Patricia Heaton is looking good for a pickup. That show was given a series commitment when it was first announced, so it was all but a certainty. And now, though, the pilot supposedly came in very well, so that one's looking very good. When we get to Fox, they're looking for a lot fewer shows, I think, than a lot of their competitors this season. They've got a sports-heavy lineup next year with uh, SmackDown coming to the network and also with uh, Thursday, Thursday Night Football returning to, uh, to the fall. Yes, yeah, so um, don't expect Fox to make many pickups this year. I believe last year Fox picked up around five shows. Uh, their overall pilot volume was down this year, so probably expect them to pick up, yeah, maybe four or five things um, going into next season. Um, I've heard that Deputy, the drama series with Stephen Dorff, is looking good. Stephen Dorff just came off a very well-received turn on season three of True Detective. And then on the comedy side, I've heard that uh, Patty's Auto is looking good, and Fox is making getting a female-led workplace comedy onto their air of priority this season. And NBC, the uh, the long-reigning champ in the advertiser-coveted 18-49 demo, <laughs> Uh, not many gaps to fill going into next season, but what are they looking at? Uh, I've heard that uh, the Keenan Thompson pilot is very good. Keenan Thompson has been, you know, an SNL vet now. He's been there over a decade, right? Yeah, uh, I yeah. mean, he's, I believe he's the longest tenured uh, cast member in the history of the show. Yeah, um, so that one is, is supposedly looking good on the comedy side. And then on the drama side, uh, Council of Dads is supposed to be looking good, as is Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist and Bluff City Law, which stars NBC favorite Jimmy Smits. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then no word really on, surprisingly, no real word on uh, Lincoln, the pilot based on uh, The Bone Collector. Um, so very surpri- very curious to see what will happen with that one. 
And finally, uh, the CW. What are what are they looking for? They picked up a, a bunch their, of shows. They renewed their entire season, slate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they renewed their entire slate. But then again, they're also programming Sunday nights now, so they need you know more content. Um, but uh, what I hear is Batwoman with Ruby Rose in the title role is was pretty much a lock in the very beginning because uh, they've never really developed a DC superhero show that didn't ultimately go to series. So that one is, you know, about as certain as you can possibly get in these situations. Um, and then also Katie Keene, which is a spinoff of Riverdale, which is another of the CW's most successful shows right now, is also looking very good for a pickup. Joe, Heather Graham and I thank you. <laughs> Again, with all love and respect to Heather Graham. Big fan of her work. That's enough. Yep. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Grant Heslov of Catch-22. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.